Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, this is David Rothkopf, the host, and we are coming to you today uh, in part from New York City, where I'm in our New York City studios uh, with our regular Thursday co-host, Ryan Goodman of NYU Law School and Just Security. Hi, Ryan. Hi, David. And from somewhere in Alabama, we have former U.S. Attorney Joyce Vance, who may be very familiar to you folks from MSNBC. Uh, welcome, uh, Joyce, to the show. Glad to be with y'all. Uh, and uh, where are you in Alabama right at this moment? I am in Birmingham, Alabama, right at this moment. Okay, I just did, you know, it adds a little color and, and makes the show seem much more exotic um, that we have these kind of Well, this is definitely the southern capital of SNARK, so appropriate for me to be joining <laughs> you from this location. Um, well, that's good. Uh, that we, should, we would feel right at home. I, the, Alabama has never figured in my uh, cultural education. I have never been to Alabama, so I... I spent my Y'all need to come down. It is um, very different from how it's often portrayed in the news. Yeah, I uh, lived there from nine to eighteen years old. Oh, really? Where, yeah. did, where wow. did Where did you live? Uh, Mountain Brook was the name of the area in Birmingham. Yeah. Did you really? Yeah. Wow, I'm outnumbered. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's 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 uh, head off to the races here. Um, there's several things to talk about, but I'll, I'll take them in no particular order. The day that we are recording this, which is a Thursday, um, is you know kind of a, a semi-momentous day in a small way, in that today is the day that the number of Democrats who support the idea of an impeachment inquiry uh, in the House became larger than the number who don't. So there's now a majority of the Democratic caucus in the House of Representatives um, who support the impeachment inquiry. Um, Now, this is, you know, potentially a big deal because it moves the House a step closer. And Nancy Pelosi has been looking for that kind of support. But and I'll pose the first question to Joyce and, you know, in this sort of form of sense of what's your reaction? Two things. One Ted Deutsch, who was who announced today that he was um, in support of this, said that no vote is required because we're already in an impeachment inquiry, as a court filing uh, two weeks ago, I guess, showed. Um, and and two, um, this is you know in part an extension of an idea that was floated by Larry Tribe, uh, which we've talked about actually on the show, which is that there is a distinction between an impeachment inquiry and impeachment hearings or formal proceedings, which allows 
the Congress to have the benefit of the weight of impeachment behind their subpoenas and, and other things, and to investigate and to hold public hearings uh, with impeachment as a uh, likely direction, but they don't have to quite commit. So maybe it's momentous, maybe it's not. What do you make of all of this, Joyce? You know, I think it's legally significant for the reason that you mentioned. Once Congress indicates in pleadings that it filed in court, that it's involved in an investigation into whether impeachment should take place, that then triggers certain legal proceedings and makes it a little bit easier and a little bit more incumbent, frankly, on judges looking at congressional requests for information to grant those requests because they're preliminary to a court proceeding. And it seems to me, and look, I'm, I'm no political analyst, but it seems to me that it's a smart political judgment because it keeps Democrats in red districts or in purple lean red districts from having to go to a formal vote on impeachment. So it looks both legally well-grounded, but also politically wise from where I sit. Ryan, what's your reaction to the development? Um, so I do think it's, uh, I, I agree with what Joyce had said as well, that the Democrats are in a good legal position now. Um, and it's uh, more like impeachment, the way I think of it is it's a continuum rather than an on-off switch. And then the further they get down that path on the continuum, the stronger their position is in court, that this is, they are therefore exercising their impeachment powers. And that's going to be important on a whole range of issues like getting Don McGahn's testimony, because the court is likely to take into account, this isn't just ordinary oversight, but Congress really using its power at its zenith under the uh, impeachment clause. So I think that's important as a legal matter. So the fact that we've crossed the tipping point um, with the House Democrats, and then as a political matter, it's uh, I think it, in some sense it might force uh, Pelosi's hand or puts her in a very different uh, situation. And I think that there's already now beginning to be a kind of a pre-commitment on the part of the House Judiciary Committee. So I think uh, just like some have been worried that if they were to vote for a formal impeachment inquiry that it would commit them to making a decision, um, I do think that uh, the Chairman Nadler is kind of entering that space where he has now made certain kinds of statements about that at the end of this process he will render a judgment or a recommendation to the full House. Uh, so that actually, I think, does uh, start to set into motion something pretty significant in which there might have to be uh, a real product here with respect to the big question of impeachment. So, Joyce, one of the things that I find a little comforting about all of this um, uh, and I say this with no prejudice towards your great appearances on MSNBC or even Ryan's or mine. Um, but it's kind of pleasing to me that this has happened in the wake of the Mueller hearing in which there was a preponderance of punditry saying Mueller spoke too slowly. Mueller muddled his words. Mueller was insufficiently telegenic. It was, a, it, it was a disaster for the Democrats. Um, and, and yet, what, what, what has happened is that something like 24, 25 Democrats have declared themselves in support of impeachment since the Mueller hearings a week ago, um, which is, uh, you know, uh, I think there were 90 or something at that time. So 
that it's it's right. it's the most uh, uh, activity there's been in this area in, in in a long time. It seems to be picking up steam. What do you think the 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 the, the thing about this Mueller hearings that all those other pundits missed was? So it's really interesting. A lot of people were focused on the optics, not the substance of of Mueller's appearance. And, you know, no surprise that someone in their mid-70s who started his career of public service by serving in Vietnam under physically strenuous conditions is, you know, not as spry as he was five or ten years ago. Um, If you looked at the substance of Mueller's testimony, though, it was every bit as impressive as one would suspect, seeing how it has changed the roll roll call uh, count among Democrats. Because Mueller walked through uh, with, I thought, a very disciplined series of questions from people in Congress, elements of federal crimes that were committed by the president. And you heard it over and over, this litany of obstruction crimes committed by the president of the United States. It's very hard, I think, to walk away from that substance. If you're a congressperson and you sit through and you see that, what are you supposed to do after that? You know, I understand people who have political concerns about impeachment, whether or not it's a smart strategy with less than than 50 percent of the American people behind it. But impeachment is essentially like indictment. It's sort of the same vehicle by a different name from a different prosecutorial body. And prosecutors don't just walk into their office one morning and, and indict. They spend sometimes months investigating and building their case to determine whether it's appropriate to bring an indictment. Impeachment is the same thing. And when you have this sort of evidence in front of you that a crime may have been, likely was committed, you must investigate. And so that's where Congress now rightly finds itself as a result of Mueller's testimony, investigating whether they should issue articles of impeachment. What, what, do, you, what do you think, Ryan? What do, what do you think was missed? Um, so I do think that, you know, I, I'll make one point of difference of, of, of opinion with uh, Joyce, but generally agree that, you know, one thing that emerged from those six plus seven hours was that the Republicans didn't lay a glove on any of the facts. So you look at that, and then in the light of whatever the optics were, there's no contestation over the facts that are alleged in that report, and the facts are damning. Um, so that's one piece that I think you can't just leave it behind. That That is a bombshell. Um, and then second is, you know, there were other elements of the hearing that I think may have been lost because so much of the focus was on the optics, like Mueller said something that was not in the report, he said that the president of the United States in his written replies to the special counsel was untruthful. He agreed with that. He said in response to the President Deming's question, he said, yes, generally. And then some thought, well, maybe he would walk that back. And it's now been over seven days. There's no walk back. So that's um, something. Uh, he didn't say the president committed perjury because that would come with intent, but that it was untruthful. So that's something very significant. Um, And then there was also another exchange, I thought, on the substance uh, with Representative Welch, where where Representative Welch basically said, isn't it true that because you couldn't prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt on on conspiracy with the Russians, doesn't mean there's no evidence of conspiracy. And uh, Mueller agreed. And then they walked through, bit by bit, evidence of conspiracy in the report. So 
adding that all together, um, in terms of impeachment, I think it's impeachment for the crimes of obstruction. Um, it's impeachment for what I didn't think they got into enough, but abuses of power that don't have to be a crime. And it's potentially impeachment for the collusion with uh, being in cahoots with uh, the Russians. I, I use the word cahoots because A.G. Barr told CBS News that there's no evidence that Trump was in cahoots uh, with the Russians. Uh, yes, there's overwhelming evidence of that, at least. So I think that's, that's what we're left with, if you just think about it in terms of what's the case, and then um, whether there's at least a duty upon the members of the House to investigate. The only um, difference of opinion that I'd register is I do actually think there's something of a concern substantively with Mueller's presentation. Um, and I mentioned it once on the podcast before. I think that he demonstrated in that ex those exchanges something that lacked a command over the um, a, a kind of a command over the facts of the report itself. And that did raise uh, some kind of a substantive concern for me. Well, let me pick up on that uh, with a question for Joyce. And then I, I want to go after this next round of questions and talk a little bit about the, the shape of impeachment qua indictment, in, as, as Joyce was describing earlier. But, but first, Joyce, one of the things that struck me, you know, that ever since Mueller was out there doing this, um, that, you know, every conversation and lots of Twitter traffic and, you know, uh, things people would say around the water cooler, you know, would involve, well, Mueller knows more. Mueller knows more than we know he knows. And, you know, Mueller knows he's got forensic, you know, accountants in there. And he knows all about Trump's finances. And he knows all about, you know, the deals behind all of this and so forth. But one of the things that Mueller said was uh, essentially that he didn't pursue the financial side of this thing. And that came as a, a little bit of a surprise to me, uh, you know, and, and it wasn't really followed up with, you know, well, why not? Because it certainly was in the purview of the of, of his mandate. He could have if it was broadly defined. Um, uh, but we know it was Trump's red line. He didn't want anybody to go there. And perhaps Mueller was guided there. Or perhaps he guided himself there. But it does seem like any impeachment might well require a good chunk more investigation if it's going to be thorough. Um, because of this gap in what Mueller and his team looked at. And I'm wondering if, if you agree with that and if you think there are any other gaps. You know, I think this is the, one of the most perplexing unanswered questions about Mueller's investigation. The grant of authority from Rosenstein was, I thought, very broad. It gave specific jurisdiction to investigate cooperation, conspiracy between the campaign, members of the campaign in Russia. But it also would have permitted Mueller to investigate any other allegations that arose during that investigation. And so, like many people, I did make the assumption that they would investigate not only Russian collusion, but, for instance, meetings that involved individuals from other countries or financial issues, including financial fraud and whether or not there was any sort of um, funny business going on with, with Russians over uh, real estate deals or, or other types of things. To me, the surprise was that Mueller construed his remit so very narrowly. We don't know, although there's some suggestion that some of those other issues 
are being evaluated uh, by other U.S. attorneys, by the U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Virginia or in the District of Columbia. Strong indication that the New York attorney general is looking at some things, but we don't know why Mueller made that decision. There was an indication in his testimony that he felt significant time pressure to complete his work. And that, too, I think is a mystery. Um, I'd like to know where that pressure came from and why he felt the need to honor it in light of how much more quickly he moved than other uh, special counsels, um, other independent counsels. Was that something that he did because he thought it was in the best interest of the case in the country, or was some other form of pressure being exerted? To me, that's the that's not necessarily a gap in the investigation, but that's the biggest unanswered question. Well, yeah, I mean, it creates gaps in the investigation, and, and there was this whole, you know, I can land this plane exchange that took place um, uh, around the transition with the attorney general's office, um, Brian, and I, and, I, and I think it's perplexing because, you know, if you were of a certain prosecutorial mind, um, particularly in light of the comment you, you, you cited before regarding the written answers that you got, hmm. then you might well have thought that the single, you know, most obvious slam dunk from a prosecutorial perspective would be to require the president to answer questions live because he was going to lie, you know, and, and, you know, per, you know, whether Rudy Giuliani saw it as a perjury trap or not, hmm. the, 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 the special counsel certainly had the right to pursue that, but apparently he declined to do it because he thought it would take too long. And I was just wondering, you know, when was the clock put on this? Thing? Right. Um, it, it, that was uh, very perplexing. He didn't have a strong answer for it. Um, and you could also think there'd be... I, I thought about another reason why it would have been beneficial to push the issue of the subpoena. Because if he pushed the issue of the subpoena, I'd written about this uh, months ago, it could have actually raised in court the question as to whether or not a sitting president is immune from indictment. Because the argument by the Trump White House would be no, you can't subpoena a sitting president. He's immune from certain kinds of criminal processes. And that would actually have been beneficial. It could break open a certain part of the case to let a court make the determination as to whether a sitting president is immune from a whole range of criminal processes. That, that's just another part of it. And, you know, I did, in, in watching Mueller, um, worry to what degree was he making these kinds of determinations based on a command of all the facts and the like. So, uh, for example, um, if it's true that, as the New York Times was reporting after the hearing, that he was participating less and less in um, interviews with witnesses, what was that about? Was it that he wasn't as much of a match uh, for the potential witnesses? If he did get the president, and it would ha then would have to be him that would be the one in the room interviewing the president. Was he up for it? Um, you know, just another indication of, like, how much did he have this, like, visibility, 360-degree visibility of the entire investigation? One of the questions that was asked of him was, you know, isn't the president above the law because the statute of limitations will run out if he serves two terms? And Mueller seemed flummoxed, like, oh, my gosh, I haven't even thought about that. And that, to me, was just so startling. This is the person that we thought knows everything. Um, so I do worry a bit about the decision calculus 
what influenced him to make these kinds of calls, and that wasn't really raised because he wasn't going to answer those questions. Okay, so, Joyce, you earlier... Can I jump in and, and just say that my take on a lot of that is very different because I think Mueller was in the role of a quasi-U.S. attorney, and typically a U.S. attorney would let members of his team conduct key interviews, would um, have them marshalling the facts, and so he had his deputy, Aaron Zeebly, who was running day-to-day operations. I-, I think if there were real concerns about Mueller's ability to participate, he would have either taken himself out or his people would have found a way to have that conversation with the deputy attorney general. So I'm much less concerned on, on those issues than Ryan is. Okay. Um, well, that's fair. So one of the things you were talking about was the idea of impeachment as a kind of indictment. And Ryan talked a little bit about uh, some of the potential grounds for impeachment. Uh, of course, impeachment comes in article form. And th- we have some history. Um, by the way, you know, one of the things I, I, no- I note about the history is that no president has ever survived a failed attempt at impeachment either. Hmm. Um, you know, electorally himself or, or his designated successor. Um, but, but having said that, Clinton was indicted for lying under oath. Nixon, there were three articles of impeachment, which included obstruction of justice and abuse of power. Andrew Johnson, there were 11 articles of impeachment, most of which were the Congress taking umbrage as, at his treatment of them. Uh, and in, in fact, the final article of impeachment said that, you know, he was disparaging of the Congress and said bad things about the Congress, kind of treated them badly. Um, but there were, you know, also the abuse of the Tenure of Office Act and some other elements of it that were direct violations of law. Um, and, I, and I guess one of the critical questions for the Congress as it shapes its investigations is going to be what are the buckets into which you shape the investigations, buckets that might at some point correspond to articles of impeachment. And clearly one of them, which Ryan cited, would be obstruction of justice, the sort of part two of the Mueller report stuff. Uh, Another one might be the uh, SDNY case on federal election law violations, because that's a a case in which he's actively involved, could certainly be categorized as a high crime or a misdemeanor. Um, And then there's, you know, all the others. Do you take the collusion? I I like the idea of if, if, if this had been known as being in cahoots with the Russians all along, And, and Trump was out there saying, no cahoots, no cahoots. Um, <laughs> that would have been so much more entertaining. But, um, but you know, the, there's the, the cahoots portion of this. And, and then there's, there's others. And my, my question to you is, you know, where would you start and how would you limit it? But, you know, there's the, um, uh, the, the tax fraud cases that caused his sister to resign as a federal judge in the wake of the New York Times articles. There's uh, ignoring the law when it comes to dealing with the Congress, whether it's the law to hand over tax returns or, or it's subpoenas or directing people not to testify. Uh, there could be something pertaining to um, lying under oath in the submission of the written testimony. There, there could be 
financial crimes that we're unaware of, et cetera. And so, you know, how much, if you're the Congress of the United States, how much of the time do you spend exploring articles, potential articles of impeachment that, that don't yet exist? And how much of the time do you spend narrowing the list to the places where it's an ironclad case? You know, isn't this the central problem of the Trump presidency? There are so many scandals that for any other president would have individually or jointly been articles of impeachment or at least scandals of major caliber. And with Trump, they seem to come sometimes two or three to a day to the point where it's almost impossible to keep focused. So as as I think you're intimating, you can't investigate everything. You can't impeach for everything. But Congress has this very broad jurisdiction, which, you know, it's not bound by a statute like prosecutors are. So it can define for itself what high crimes and misdemeanors are. And although Speaker Pelosi has suggested, you know, at one earlier point that she wanted to wait on proof of actual crimes and that if if there was evidence that Trump had committed crimes, that that would form the basis for impeachment. I don't think that they should limit their investigation that way. Sure, there are standout crimes here. There's the campaign finance violations. There's obstruction. But I think that they should also look at other issues. As Ryan points out, um, you know, if we're going to call it in cahoots now, that certainly deserves a strong look because we need to determine whether it's consistent with the president's oath of office for him to ask a hostile foreign power to help him um, to, to dig up dirt on his opponent in a presidential campaign. It seems to me that that is relatively startling behavior that is inconsistent with what we should expect of our president. And it sort of goes on from there. And I agree it'll be difficult for Congress because it's hard to see how they could realistically focus on more than four or five big buckets of conduct at the same time. You know, as a prosecutor, I can tell you how difficult it was in cases sometimes where the the evidence was all over the board and you really had to pick what looked like the strongest count and put your resources there. What you don't want to be here is an inch deep and a mile wide. You've got to just pick four or five topics and drill down. Well, yeah, and and Ryan, you know, one of the things that's been brought up by some of the committees and staff and people that I've spoken to is they, they're, they're understaffed, they're under-resourced, mm. they don't really have the ability to go and, and deal with four or five different um, things here. But I'm wondering um, where you might focus in this regard? So one, so I agree with uh, what Joyce had said as well. I think one piece that I would think about, one axis along which to think about uh, what's in the Mueller report is that volume two is um, presented by Mueller because his entire remit was criminal law and he was only looking for crimes. But what's in there are what I think falls into another bucket, uh, which is abuses of power. And um, those are clearly impeachable offenses if they you know, violate to uh, the, the public trust uh, through egregious abuses of power. And I think that we have been so sidetracked, um, partly by lawyers, um, into the thinking just about the crimes, because if a crime, then a fortiori impeachable, that we're losing sight of these other instances. So just to give one example, 
and I can, I'll give, I guess, two examples. One, in the Mueller report, the Republican chief of staff, Reince Priebus, says to the Republican attorney general, Mr. Attorney General, Mr. Sessions, the fact that the president has taken your resignation letter and is sitting on it as leverage, meaning that he could fire you at any point by just saying to the public, the attorney general has resigned, so he's now got leverage over you. This is what the Mueller report says. Quote, Priebus told Sessions it was not good for the president to have the letter because it would function as a kind of shock collar that the president could use at any time he wanted. Priebus told the president, Priebus said the president had, quote, DOJ by the throat. So to focus the country on Republican chief of staff is saying that to the Republican attorney general about the Republican president, that's how gross the abuse of power is. Is that a crime? I don't think that's a crime necessarily, or I'd have a hard time thinking which one it is, but it's so grotesque in what it's doing to the Justice Department and its independence that we think that that, you know, everybody should think no president into the future should ever think that that's permissible. Well, and there is precedent for abuse of power being an article of impeachment, right? Absolutely. So it's Nixon's, uh, I think it's the first article of impeachment for Nixon. And the second example is we don't have to go into the minutia on some of it with respect to the elements of the crime. So, for example, Mueller says that when the president told Don McGahn to enter a false record about when the president ordered McGahn to fire to try to get uh, Mueller fired, the question is, well, did the president have a nexus in that request, a nexus to an ongoing investigation? That's to make the the element for the federal offense. And there's an argument, A.G. Barr said this in Senate testimony, that, oh, it was actually trying to get um, again to lie for the press, not for the criminal investigation, even though Mueller concludes factually it's for the criminal investigation. So who cares? <laughs> like the answer would be, it's a gross abuse of power to tell your White House counsel to enter a false record to lie to the press. Um, that is a gross abuse of power. We don't have to only focus this on the crime. So I do think that one is within the bandwidth of the staff because they're looking at the same materials, and we should just broaden the aperture uh, when thinking about what's in that report. So, Joyce, speaking of a broader aperture, um, and this could be Nancy Pelosi's ultimate out, right? There could be so many articles of impeachment that there's no way she could finish doing all of this in 18 months. Uh, but but uh, Ben Wittes of, of Lawfare proposed, at least on Twitter a couple of days ago, but floated the idea that even systematic institutionalized racism on the part of the president might be a ground of impeachment. I don't know whether the genesis of that is he swore an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, and that requires certain kinds of behavior, equal protection under law or something like that. Um, But, you know, there are other things that the president has done that are, you know, dereliction of his duty, dereliction of, of, of the responsibility of his office, whether it's for political or racial reasons, little turning his back on the people of Puerto Rico and having, you know, 3,000 people die, or putting children in cages on the border, uh, telling, uh, as I believe happened in this case, uh, D- Department of Homeland Security uh, officials, that they should just ignore the law. Uh, and, you know, if you know, you know, somebody said something about it, they'd handle it later which strikes me as a very clear abuse of power, um, uh, uh, and, and, and so on. And so the, there is a sort of whole area of the president's behavior, which is 
not just egregious and or indecent, but is violation of law, the spirit of his oath, uh, you know, in some cases, perhaps even violation of international law uh, with regard to human rights violations or law regarding asylum. So, you know, are these things that ought to be considered or is this just should be left as political fodder? So I think that there are folks, maybe a lot of folks, who believe that these are issues that voters should decide in the election in 2020. But it seems to me that there's some category of conduct that is so outrageously violative of the rule of law and, of course, accordingly, the president's oath of office, that it should be considered for impeachment. You know, Trump started out slowly in this area, testing the waters. But one of the early incidents was when he was speaking to a group of police chiefs and he was talking about arrests. And of course, there are laws that require police to not engage in excessive force in that sort of a situation. But Trump encouraged them to not be gentle. You know, there's no reason for you to put your hand on top of someone's head when you're arresting them and put them into a police car. It's okay to be a little bit rough, he suggested. And that was absolutely shocking to me and to many people in law enforcement. It was so disrespectful of the rights that we grant people in this country under the Constitution. And, of course, with hindsight, that incident seems relatively minor because we now have a president who suggests that he simply doesn't have to follow the law, that it doesn't apply to him, whether it's um, characterizing obstruction of justice is an unimportant process crime, or trying to somehow suggest that campaign finance law doesn't apply to him. It seems over and over there's this approach of cavalier disregard for the law, and that's dangerous. We've seen it happen so many times now that people are in many ways almost immune to it. There's maybe a little bit of outrage fatigue going on. I think that that bucket of, of items, and again, it's sort of a bucket that spills over, so you would have to put it together very neatly and narrowly, but that sort of conduct is such a gross violation of the oath of office that it seems ripe for investigation as to whether it should be included in impeachment. Any others, Ryan? Uh, to add to the list? <laughs> yeah, well, I was yeah. just, you know, I mean, Andrew, Johnson, a long list. Andrew yeah. Johnson got 11 articles of impeachment. I think we can do better than that. Do it. Um, yeah, I mean, there's also a political calculation as to whether or not any of this can reach a point that it would be bipartisan. Um, so I think that that's significant. Um, the, and, and especially because... I, 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 would, I would interject to that, that it might not ever reach the point where you could expect bipartisan support. But if you could make the case in the court of public opinion effectively that not having bipartisan support was, in effect, an indictment of those who didn't support it because you picked things that were very, very clearly the case, then that might achieve a political purpose, even if it didn't achieve the possibility of a a Senate removal. Right, right. Um, And also just how vocal maybe even members of Congress would be against uh, the initiative. And I do think as we go further into 2020, um, that that might, or towards 2020 and into it, that that might change the political calculus. So just in these last two weeks, we had five uh, members of the House, Republicans, announced that they're resigning. Um, 
partly apparently expressing uh, privately concerns about how uh, difficult it is in a, being in the House uh, in the minority under Trump. So with people resigning and therefore not trying to serve again, with others that make it past their primary so they're not as afraid of uh, the president anymore, maybe there's some movement there. So I do think that might be, once again, another reason as to why to just identify the most outrageous conduct that would generate a consensus of some sort. Yeah. So we're, we're running out of time. This is a great conversation, and I, and I, and I don't want to overstay our welcome with our listeners or, or with either of you. But let me pose one last question, um, which came to sort of, well, it's actually come up several times in the past week or two in conversations I've had, but I thought about it when I was watching the debates. And there was a question that was posed um, to Kamala Harris pertaining to the general idea of whether or not you prosecute Mm. Trump after he leaves office. And there is a school of thought that you don't prosecute political opponents, um, that it sets a bad precedent, you know, uh, sets you on a slippery slope to authoritarianism. And of course... We are hearing that school of thought as Barr and, and, and John Ratcliffe, the uh, proposed new head of, 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 of uh, the director of national intelligence, the proposed new director of national intelligence, have contemplated what crimes the Obama administration might have, have undertaken. And so there are a lot of Democrats saying, no, no, don't do that. But, but here you have a case where the president may have committed some very clear crimes and the failure to prosecute him for those crimes in office or out of office would send the message that the president is indeed above the law and undermine essentially the core concept in which the United States was founded, which is that no one is above the law. And so there's the tension. And, and Joyce, I'm wondering how you resolve it. And then Ryan, I'm wondering how you resolve it. You know, one of the things that you think a lot about when you work at DOJ, which I did for 25 years, is protecting the integrity of your office. If the community that you serve doesn't believe in your integrity, doesn't believe that you do things for the right reasons, not for political reasons, then ultimately the entire criminal justice system fails. And I've often heard the analogy used um, to a reservoir, which slowly fills with water, over a long period of time. It takes a long time for it to fill, but just one pinprick can cause all of that water to leak out. And that's why you hear good prosecutors talk about how no one case is more important than the integrity of the office. And if you've got a case where you've got a Fourth Amendment problem or some other issue, the smart thing to do is to let that case go to ensure that your overall operations are conducted in the right way. So that sort of You know, the the Trump situation puts that a little bit on its head, as you point out, because if Trump never faces a fair investigation and a fair assessment of whether or not he should be indicted, it does raise the specter that he is uniquely above the law. And that, in many ways, is is the problem that we have here that the public doesn't trust. So I, I appreciated last night hearing Senator Harris clarify her earlier comments and clarifying the fact that a decision about whether or not to prosecute should not be a political decision. No president should make that decision. 
that should be made by an attorney general in consultation with his or her most experienced senior staff. And look, I know this president loves to criticize prosecutors for being political, but I've got to tell you that that's not how it works. Good prosecutors, well-trained prosecutors leave their politics at the office door every day and do these cases. Because if you think the politics that are raised in a national case are unique, they're not. Every time that you have a senator or a mayor or a local sheriff in your eyesight, there are political pressures that come into play. And prosecutors just ignore that stuff and go on and do their jobs looking at the law and the facts. So this will make the next president's attorney general appointment very, very critical. They'll need someone who I think has broad bipartisan support who can conduct this sort of investigation because it will need to be conducted and who will have confidence in their conclusion at the end of the day. And Donald Trump, with his conduct every day where he criticizes prosecutors and the FBI and the intelligence community, he is making this very, very difficult. He's making the entire conduct of the criminal justice system perilous as, as we go forward. That's one of the lasting travesties of this administration. It's a really big, thorny issue, Ryan, yes. for, 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 for just these reasons. And we're going to face it potentially in 18 months. I'm glad that uh, Joyce answered first. <laughs> um, I think that's right. I also think that in that period of time, there might be the New York State authorities, and maybe they would also wait until after those 18 months, uh, because then he would not, it would raise a certain kind of concern, which is, is a sitting president immune? And federalism concerns that even though they're, the New York State authorities are not bound by the DOJ's opinion that a sitting president is immune, they wouldn't face that question for a uh, former president. And then, you know, the, we do have a precedent for this, uh, and I think that would also weigh in the calculation of that attorney general, which is um, the special prosecutor for Watergate, Leon Jaworski, went to President Ford at the time and said, I'm going to move forward on an obstruction of justice <laughs> prosecution of the former President Nixon. It will be a long, drawn-out process for the nation, and that is apparently what motivated Ford to uh, give the pardon. Um, but Jaworski wrote about that uh, it's a, uh, in a Law Review article. And so I think that that's what would weigh. It's, and Jaworski was concerned about the rule of law. That's what he also had submitted to the Supreme Court, that nobody is above the law, uh, which is also the last line of the Mueller report. So I do think that it would be one of the most solemn uh, questions for that attorney general. And maybe that attorney general should, in fact, appoint a special counsel um, maybe even somebody preferably who's independent or Republican to make that determination. I also agree with one of the many of the things that Joyce said, but one of the lines in which Joyce said, but the question will have to be addressed. They will have to investigate or ask this question as to uh, whether or not to open, reopen the case. Um, if the case is simply just the obstruction of justice piece of it, um, and there might be even more, obviously, in terms of other kinds of crimes. Uh, so I do think that that's a question they'll have to add, ask and answer, and I do also agree that it's very good that Senator Harris backed off of saying that she, as president, shall um, order the prosecution of uh, President Trump. I think that uh, that was uh, deeply mistaken, and it's good to see that she adjusted. Well, it's a portentous question, and it suggests that as, as weighty as the issues we deal with every day uh, during this presidency are, uh, there will be issues that will follow this presidency, possibly for a long, long time. 
that require the same kind of discussion. Fortunately, we're here every week, and we can have discussions like this. And uh, Joyce, I'm really, really grateful uh, for you uh, joining us. And I hope you see as a sign of that that we brought a fellow Alabaman, Ryan, here <laughs> um, uh, to, uh, uh, to, 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 to join you. Um, and we hope you'll, you'll come back and, and join us both again as we continue these discussions. Well, I, I enjoyed doing it. I hope you'll have me back, and I look forward to continuing the uh, Alabamization of America. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we'll 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 do what we can to support that, and <laughs> all of you out there, you know, please join us for other um, uh, episodes of Deep State Radio and our other podcast, National Security Magazine. This week, we've got a really, really remarkable interview conversation I had with. John McLaughlin, former acting director of Central Intelligence, former deputy director of Central Intelligence, a career intelligence official who is deeply, deeply worried about uh, not just the potential appointment of John Ratcliffe as director of National Intelligence, um, but of where we're going as a country with regard to how we treat uh, processes like intelligence and the law. And I encourage you to, to, to join us for that. Uh, and a whole host of other future um, uh, uh, guests uh, that are already lined up. It's it, National Security Magazine's special show, Deep State Radio's special show, Unredacted Podcast is special. Join us for all of them and go to the dsrnetwork.com for more information on each and for helping to support us. If you find this valuable, you can go and become a member and help uh, uh, support the DSR Network as we continue to grow. Thanks to everybody, Ryan, uh, Joyce, and all of you listening. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.